possibility of my applying to become an artist in residence. Are we okay there? Yes. And that thought, you know, so then we had a whole series of meetings. And at that point, Welcome, the Wellcome Trust operated something called, they called the Sci Art Fund, the Science Art Fund. And the point of the Science Fund was to bring together artists with named scientists. And Simon, I think, you know, was invaluable to the whole project because he had a very, very good knowledge of what all 700 scientists at the National Institute were doing and who would be interested in having a dialogue with me. And he introduced me to Dr Malcolm Logan, whose lab appears in the piece Room 147, and Dr Evelyn Geevers. And Evelyn was very unusual for a medical research scientist in that she was also qualified as a doctor. So that was a particularly interesting conversation. And eventually we put in an application which was successful to the Wellcome Trust for me to spend 18 months at the Institute part-time looking at how, how we define normal and how we as a society use these concepts of normal to, you know, to look at disabled people and to construct a world around disability. But the other thing that I wanted to look at is whether there was a scientific model of disability that was distinct from the medical model of disability. Because I think there's a... Is it worth talking about helping the handicapped at this point? Now, this is actually a print version of a website that I was commissioned to make in 2003. And 2003 was European Year of Disabled People. But the city of Graz in Austria who commissioned this were also European capital of culture. And there was a discourse, I think, in Britain around, oh, European Year of Disabled People, the Europeans don't understand what, what we as disabled people mean by the social model of disability. And I thought, well, why should they? It's an American kind of theory. It's been developed for the UK but it's never really been developed in Europe. And what I wanted to do was come up with something very, very simple that could be easily translated into different languages. So this started off in English and German, but has been translated into other languages since, that just looked at the theory behind the disability arts movement. But when I looked back at that several years later, having done the Arts Catalyst course, I thought, well, I'm not really talking here I mean, it's too small, but if I just read and describe it, it says at the top, I want to help the handicapped according to the medical model of disability. And you've got somebody who at the time I thought was, was what I thought a doctor did because I didn't realise at that point that doctors don't do medical research and with exceptions like Evelyn, medical researchers aren't doctors. So it says, I invent and administer tests to classify disabled people according to what I think are their impairments. Then I carry out experiments to try to make them more like me. If I fail, I try to identify and kill them before they're born. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on there, but it's actually more about science than it is about medicine. And I think that's when it occurred to me that perhaps some of the confusion we as disabled people have around the medical model is there was actually all this science, you know, science was in there too and we hadn't been able to separate it. So Welcome very generously agreed that I could spend my time thinking about whether or not this was true. 
And if I came to the conclusion that, no, there wasn't a separate scientific model, that was fine. And I didn't actually have to produce any work at the end of it, but I think it was always inevitable for me that I would do, and thus the exhibition came about. Can I just interject here? Is that the question? Who wrote this? Who wrote this? I wrote this. I mean, that's one thing I'd like to come back to, the difference between the scientific and the medical model of disability. Can you just unpick that in... in very clear terms. <laughs> That's a challenge, isn't it? I think, well, the medical model of disability is, I think, the sort of overarching theory that disabled people have come up with over the last 30 years to sort of look at the way in which disability is seen as an individual's medical problem and therefore only a doctor can cure it. So the very simple example we often give as a disabled people's movement is that if I, if I arrive at a building and there's a big flight of stairs and there's no lift, under the medical model of disability, it would be my problem that I can't get in. It would be my defective body. And therefore, the only people who could deal with that are doctors who could cure my defective body, and then I'd be able to climb the stairs. Whereas with a social model of disability, we would say, well, as soon as you put a lift in or a ramp or you have level access, I can get into the building. So the problem is not about me and my body. The problem is with society. And the person who's going to be able to sort that out is all of us. It's not about doctors. Now, with a scientific model of disability, I think I've looked at the way that, particularly within the media, we're so encouraged, and absolutely have been encouraged, particularly since the Second World War, to think that science is going to have this ability to cure, and it's going to happen very, very soon. And indeed, you know, there's been numerous programmes and newspaper reports and magazine articles over the last few years that very soon we're going to understand the secret of life, we're all going to be able to be immortal. And therefore, you don't really have to bother about disability because science is going to cure us. So, and it's really a temporary problem. So why would you spend the money on a ramp? Why would you bother to put a lift into an old building? If we're all soon going to be mortal, you simply don't need it. And how has it been... As I understand it, we've been your most overtly biomedical um, museum that you've worked with. Um, how has it been working with us um, as the Royal College of Surgeons? How has that worked? Well, it's been very interesting. I mean, I really ought to ask you that, actually, because I think it's probably kind of more of a culture shock for the museum than it is for me. I mean, I've, I've very much enjoyed it. I hadn't... I think I hadn't myself realised till I first visited the museum, which was after the exhibition had been agreed, just what a focus there is on body parts. And I think that's certainly been challenging for some of the people working with me, because I, you know, when I first came in, I hadn't warned my PA, because I didn't know. And the PA looks at all of these beautiful, sparkling jars and then realises what's in them and almost passed out, which was unfortunate. I'm just wondering, can everybody who's just come in see, because there's another seat at the front. Thank you. We were in the museum. 
If you have that one here. No, no, that's fine. Can everybody else see? See through there, Julie? Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll be fine. Um, no, 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 it's... Would you like to come back over here now? Is that easy if we... <laughs> well, let the lady move anyway. Then we've got another one there if... How's that for everyone? Yeah. <laughs> so where were we? Well, I was about to... Oh, yes. You talk about the scientific model and the social model. Which society are you referring to? I mean, particularly, um, different societies have different interpretation of different disabilities. Do you want to repeat that so people can hear the question? Uh, there's an excellent question referring to the kind of cultural specificity of the social model of disability, um, expertly unpicking that this is referring to a very particular society. And Ju, you've already made reference to the difference between perhaps Anglophone critical understanding of disability and other European understandings in your experience in Austria. So the question I take it to be, which society are you speaking about with the social model of disability? Well, I think the first thing to say is, as with any theory, and I certainly didn't invent the social model, the medical model, or any of these other theories, you know, I've, and I call this towards a scientific model, because I don't think one person can make theory anyway. I would in my experience working across the world, I would say that what we're referring to is Western society, as it's termed, which of course includes places like Australia and New Zealand, which have got very similar cultures. I don't think that any of this very kind of Western-centric theory, and indeed just the way we experience life, applies to developing countries. And I don't know enough about cultures you know, in other parts of the world to be able to comment. So where I'm able to actually write about the theory, then I'm quite specific that it's a Western, you know, but like I say, it's also wildly generalised. I think like any theory has to be. Does that help? Yeah, but what you're doing, you're putting the general aspect to a specific aspect. I mean, you talk about disability like places like India, <coughs> it would be entirely different from disability in Western Europe. So you have different mindsets altogether. So I think you have to be careful what you're talking about, the social aspect of 
Yeah, sorry, I didn't hear it. I missed there. one part in the middle there, um, uh, at the end of your first sentence. Sorry. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> it was well, I think you might have to be careful when you used to talk about the social disability. Yeah. If you're referring to Western Europe, for example, which is much more um, humane than to other countries in the world, you could uh, have a different uh, view of disability altogether. Like in India, for example, or in Africa, um, the view would be entirely different. Yeah, that's why, like I say, this is very much about Western society. And we're looking specifically at the, the role of the biomedical establishment is very particular to different cultures. It's, there's a great many similarities across Anglophone cultures, I think. Sorry, a question there behind you? Yes, and yet I was very taken when I came back from Latin America how in England the United Nations uh, directive is not yet quite digested or applied, which is that in Latin America now, you would never call someone a disabled person. You would call someone a person with a disability and then the name of the dysfunction, because they are persons first, disability second, and the dysfunction just as a number of what is their dysfunctionality of yeah. a I person. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of recap on that, I mean, I think it's interesting how different people, different societies obviously move at different rates. I mean, we had a period, say in the 80s and early 90s in the UK, where the language was very much talking about a person with a disability. But then that was felt to be still about locating the problem, if you like, with an individual. Whereas a social model of disability just says, well, everybody's going to be disabled at some point. You know, it's just a natural part of life. It's a kind of integral part of the human condition. You can't separate out individuals and say, well, these people have a dysfunction and these people don't. You know, and I think the whole theory behind the disability arts movement and the disability rights movement, certainly in the West, is that we're all normal. You know, all of these things are completely normal. And it's the way society attempts to distinguish between these normal individuals and these abnormal individuals that's the problem. And I think that's why we moved back to talking about disabled people, because it's about saying the barriers are external. It's not about us having a dysfunction. It's about society being quite dysfunctional in believing that because we're all about to be cured and we're all about to be immortal, you know, you can have these kind of, in the meantime, you can say, well, these individuals are absolutely fine and these individuals are defective. And I think that's, you know, was very much the kind of starting point for the research and the residency, is why we have these ideas that you can separate out and one group of people is normal and another group isn't. And I think the question, um, brings to attention the use of handicapped as a term here in this particular artwork, which is um, aimed at an American audience when handicapped... Uh well, it's aimed at an international audience. And I think, again, when you look at language, you know, it, on an international basis, the language is handicapped. In this country, we would see that as being very old-fashioned, quite demeaning, 
And I think a lot, you know, depending on which school of linguistics you belong to, if you believe that handicapped means cap in hand, then people see that very much as the sort of old stereotype as the disabled person as a beggar. But I think in Central Europe, if you were speaking English, you think about handicapped and it doesn't have those connotations at all. And this piece is now eight years old, I believe? Um, yes, at least. How has your thinking uh, along these lines developed in that quite a long period in intellectual development? Um, well, I think for me what's developed has been this idea that there is that the medical model is not this kind of simple, straightforward thing, that there are all these beliefs about science and that it's helpful to separate them. And thinking about these beliefs about science, one of the works that has been really interesting in this context is your piece, Men in White Coats. Now this, if I may explain, as you can see from the slide here, are a series of lab coats, which has a certain iconographic status in representing modern Western biomedicine. And what's interesting about this piece is that you'll have seen that it's distributed not only in the gallery with the other work upstairs, there's also uh, one of the coat stands at the front of the museum. There's one of the racks upstairs in the training suites where all the surgeons go to develop their skills. We have a very high-tech um, training facilities up there where we do dissection, we do um, practice surgery and so on. There was a rack up there. Now, two interesting things happened in relation to this piece. Firstly, the stand that was downstairs in the main hall had... Remind me of the wording that was on that jacket. Was it jailer or was it executioner? Executioner. It had executioner on it. Now, this was there for about three days until a senior colleague pointed out that this didn't enhance the reputation <laughs> of the Royal College of Surgeons. So I swapped it for one that said specimen collector. But actually, by this point, I think the point had been made, so we moved it upstairs because that piece, out of context, that piece was a little um, blatant, I think. Interestingly, the rack that was upstairs in this training suite was broken. Now, it wasn't that any of the pieces, any of the lab coats were stolen, it wasn't that they were torn, but the rack at the bottom um, was fractured. Now, this... I think needed some force to do. Mm. Now, on the one hand, this might have been a very uh, literate, informed piece of iconoclasm on behalf of a very angry surgeon or scientist. As it happens, it was probably a catering trolley. <laughs> but I'm interested in how people have responded to this work here. How do you think Men in White Coats has been from your perspective, how do you think it's been received in this context? Well, I think the third interesting thing that happened for me is within about two days, the first surgeon had made a bid to buy one of the coats. So I, I suspect there's a kind of split between the administrative response, if you like, and, and the surgical response, which has just been, oh, I'd love to have a coat which says God, and um, you know, the execution is quite fun too. And 
But I think the background to the piece for me, we were talking earlier, is quite interesting as well. It's another piece that was commissioned in Graz. They have a festival every October, which the German translates as um, just autumn festival, but I'm not very good at the German accent. And there was a particular theme of the festival that year that this fitted into. So these were originally produced as, as a performance, if you like, although it wasn't much of a performance. It was very much a performative lecture. I projected one of the other pieces from upstairs, which is just the rattling cage bars on the wall. And he essentially came along in the artist's apron and took all of them out of the laundry basket and hung them up and then took my apron off and then, you know, then gave the lecture. But it was a very interesting piece to research because I hadn't realised the extent to which white coats are just purely symbolic. You know, they started off as being practical coats for scientists, but within the medical profession, they were adopted purely to say, we are scientific people. We are not like all of these other healers and all of these other healing traditions. We are based on science. And then they spent the next 100 years merrily spreading germs around hospitals until it was realised that the reason that MRSA and so on wasn't, the levels weren't going down despite the introduction of hand wash is that people were spreading germs around the hospital on the coat sleeves. So now, in fact, it's illegal to wear these in hospitals. You can only wear a coat that finishes at the elbow. Anything else is just seen as just simply spreading infection. But despite that, they've developed this ceremony in... American medical schools where they literally have a white coat ceremony. So before you start as a medical student, you go along and you have this ceremonial white coat and you walk across the stage and you put your coat on. So it was a fascinating piece to research. Some people have said to me, does the German recall the number of disabled and deaf people who were put to death in the Nazi death camps? And I said, well, no, it was really there because it was made for a German audience, an Austrian audience. But of course, there is that element as well. And I, you know, when I've been working elsewhere in Austria, I've been really uncomfortably aware of the history of some of the sites, very, very close to where I've been working. And it's been interesting to me the kind of, if you like, the very positive response I've had every time I've worked in Austria and Switzerland, even though they do have a very different culture and a very different attitude to disabled people. I've always had a, you know, like I say, a very, very positive response to my work, and if you like, a much more mainstream response. Uh, a lot of things gone through my mind. One thing's about um, Germany in that area. I once used to visit East Germany a lot. There's a place called Weidenfeld in East Germany, now in Germany. And they, um, at the beginning of the last century, they had a hospital where they had these metal contractions and they put them into the mouths of people who couldn't speak because they were deaf to make them speak. And if they didn't do it correctly, it made their mouths bleed and that sort of thing. But at the time, those German scientists thought they were doing the best thing to make deaf people who cannot speak speak to their help of heavy metal, so to speak. Obviously, that thing passed, you know. But everything seems to be evolution. You know, everything seems to evolve onto the next stage, whatever it is. I mean, today we talked about make sure to put the word personal first before disabilities come into this country. The ONID or National Institute for the Deaf became National Institute for Deaf People, and now something else. Um, but I find that attitudes are involved in all the time. Sometimes it's forced. 
But what about the normal person who has all this shopping and cannot pick it up? They become disabled at that point because they need help. They need a third, they need a second person to help them. Some people think they've got everything, but they can't understand if you steal somebody's mobile phone. Yeah, I mean, I, I have talked a lot in my written work about that kind of distinction, if you like, between, I mean, if we look at perhaps Wheels on Fire, which also feeds back into the sort of discussion about medicine, this idea that all sorts of technology is seen as perfectly normal and very desirable and very natural, you know, sort of natural extension of the body, and yet you have things like wheelchairs and like indeed hearing aids, which are seen as undesirable and unnatural, even though they facilitate our lives in exactly the same way. And you know, the chances are at some point in our lives, most of us will need to use them. And there is absolutely this you know, very artificial distinction and this real kind of stigmatization of certain technologies and yet total acceptance of others. And it's almost as if the ones that we don't need are seen as being very natural and desirable, and the ones that we do need are seeing, seen as being unnatural and undesirable. Did you want to take the somebody at the back? I think? Can I take the question at the back first? Yes, uh, please. I think the thing, I just like to play devil's avocado here. And um, I'm sort of thinking, like, you can see why we've got these models. But I'm just looking at normal society, do normal society have these models and I think that perhaps it's these models that is kind of separating us from them and I'm wondering what would happen if we just did away with the models completely. I th the question as I take it is about whether the models are actually perpetuating a uh, chasm between um, uh, different sectors of society. Yeah, so are they a help or a hindrance to social cohesion? Well, I think the only way you can change society is to understand what's going on. And I think if you look back over the centuries, you know, in, to, indeed, if you look at the Enlightenment, which is when Hunter was beginning to collect his body parts, and you'd had a period of over a millennia where the church banned anybody from doing autopsies and nobody understood the body at all. You know, the Enlightenment was very much a period where everybody started questioning all of the things they took for granted. And I think if you don't look at... I mean, I think models of disability were developed to help us understand what we'd taken for granted, you know. And I think it, was, it had become taken for granted that if you were deaf or disabled, there was something wrong with you, there was something abnormal and that it was a medical matter and a personal matter and something that only doctors could do something about. It was nothing to do with the rest of society. So I think it's... I don't know if you look, if you look at feminism and the suffragettes. You know, people took it absolutely for granted that women were seen as being inferior who, through the process of evolution, had become more and more inferior to men. And it was only when people started looking at why that was and why people believed it, that attitudes changed. So, no, I think you can harp on far too much about theory, but I think it's a useful way of saying, you know, why do we take all these things for granted? Why do we think all these things are normal? 
when they're not normal at all? And why do we still have this idea that all sorts of things, probably the majority of us, are not normal when actually we all are? Certainly I find the models a useful way not of prescribing how we should behave but describing a set of attitudes and if we understand that more then we can perhaps use this to make change. A question in the middle here? Uh, yes, uh, many of my friends have in Latin America have approached the architect because they have a physical impediment to enjoying you know, the inside of a building or you know, the access to something or the telephone that is at the height of the wheelchair or the, or the WC, you know. So they've approached the architects and even in airports and public places, the disability needs are being hammered into the architect's agenda. I wondered if you and your colleagues have already had um, some experience of knocking at the door of the Royal Architects Institute here in London. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the most practical things that came out of a movement that, if you like, was able to articulate a social model of disability. Because it's only when you believe that things like architectural barriers are the real problem that you can start tackling them. And that was very much instrumental in... The first Disability Discrimination Act came in in 1995. <coughs> And from then until 2000, the rules became increasingly complex in how you build new buildings. Now, having said that, disability discrimination law is the only law in this country that actually enshrines discrimination, that says it's okay to discriminate if you think it's too expensive or otherwise unreasonable. I mean, the Royal College finds it completely impossible to be able to just put a a canvas cover over the, over the chairlift outside, which is otherwise breaking down because of the rain, because Westminster are able to turn around and say, well, for reasons of heritage, you shouldn't have this canvas cover. Now, in a lot of other countries, that would actually now be illegal, and it was interesting that you mentioned the UN Convention on the Rights of Disabled People, because the UK did not exactly rush to ratify it, and it still has... I mean, I'm, I actually take the lead in monitoring the UK's implementation of Clause 30, which is how the UN Convention relates to art and culture. But it was very interesting to me that countries like Paraguay happily signed up to the whole thing, and yet the UK still won't commit to equality in education, to the, is it the prison and justice system, and um, I think around advocacy. So, for example, there are a huge number of disabled people, it's turned out, whose benefits are being claimed by somebody else, and we have no review process. So we have things where people have been, somebody else has claimed benefits for somebody for 15 years, and there's no review. And rather than sign up to the UN Convention and say some, that should happen, again, they opted out, which seems to me to be quite major when you're claiming that disabled people are responsible for all this benefit fraud, and yet the kind of most likely area for fraud, which is other people claiming their benefits, wasn't being investigated at all. Sorry, that's slightly going off the subject. No, it's very germane. Uh, the issue of the canvas cover over the lift outside um, points to a, an uncomfortable irony that as a heritage organisation, it's the heritage legislation that is being used to hinder access to the building. 
I find it really interesting that the government has now brought in this kind of assumption, what do they call it, a kind of assumption that you should develop in the green belt so that from now on when you put in a planning application in the green belt the assumption has to be that it's going to be granted rather than the other way around and yet there's no assumption that you should be able to fit a ramp or a stair lift or widen the doorway the assumption is unless you can absolutely prove so we have this sort of double double bind where we as disabled people have to persuade an institution that it's reasonable under the law for them to fix something and then they have to persuade the council that it's reasonable and again i think there is this unconscious belief why spoil the architecture when science is going to solve the problem you know either by detecting fetuses before they're born or by curing you know we're not going to need you know these are don't need to be permanent changes. And I find that a kind of extraordinary and, you know, what I've described as an abnormal mindset that we can just continue through life with completely inaccessible buildings on the grounds that the human race is going to change as opposed to just sticking the cover on. And if we turn from access to museums, perhaps to representation in museums, one thing that's been um, of great interest to curators in the last three or four years certainly has been the representation of people with disabilities in museums, art galleries and uh, other areas for display. I'm very interested in your reflections on how people are represented in museums. I think again it's something else where for me to play devil's advocate back, models of disability have been very handy because it, it allowed people to sort of see themselves as a group who otherwise have nothing in common. I mean, I think that's, again, under a medical model, you have lots in common simply because you share an impairment or an access need. Whereas I think as, you know, what we call a disabled community would be saying, well, we may not have anything else in common, but what we experience are these unnecessary barriers and these, this kind of very prejudicial view of our lives and that's what we share, that's what brings us together. And I think in turn people are then able to say, well, hang on, why are people like us not represented? In the same way that you look at media images and if you, if you were kind of a Martian kind of looking down on the earth, you would believe that the majority of the population are under 40, which of course isn't true at all, that very few of them are black that almost none of them are disabled, you know, that very, very few people are over the age of 60. And I think you can, at the same point as looking at contemporary images, which I think in the last few years, images of disabled people in the 20th century were charity images, or they were medical images, and that was, you know, all in latter time, triumph over tragedy images, where somebody's triumphed over the tragedy of their life to achieve things, and therefore why can't everybody else just get off up their backsides and, and do the same? And I take Abnormal One, which is shown here, to be a riff on the medicalised representation of disability. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, this was one of the pieces that was very directly inspired by my very first visit to the National Institute of Medical Research on the last day of the Symbiotica course. And I, I think because we were considered to be 
for whatever reason, a VIP audience. We had very senior people come down from different parts of the Institute over the day to lecture us about their section of the Institute. And two of them relied very, very heavily on these medical photographs of vast majority of teenagers, children and teenagers, either in their underwear or stripped completely naked, revealed for the camera. And I've spoken to about this to quite a lot of other disabled people since and because what I saw when I looked at these photographs was young people who very much had their privacy invaded who felt actually abused and if you looked at their eyes because most of the eyes were uncovered although there's also a convention in medical photography to cover the eyes you know, you saw young people who at best were embarrassed and at worst were completely dissociating themselves from their bodies in that situation. And everybody else in the room was asking what's wrong with them. And I was thinking, well, what's wrong with us that we're looking at these very personal photographs that people have only given permission to have taken in the belief that it was helping to monitor their personal situation and might at best be shared with other doctors. And it was being shown to a bunch of artists who had no reason to look at it. And everybody's just going, well, let's categorise them, you know, very medical model, let's categorise them by their impairments <coughs> and say, what's wrong with you? Well, this is this, you know, this is this impairment, this is that, this is the other. And it started me on a journey which ended up producing this piece, which has also got other things going on, some of which I probably don't know myself. I mean, I know we were talking the other week that somebody had said, oh, yes, that... It's very like Renaissance and all the photographs, you know, pictures of people with animal masks. Well, I'm not aware of having seen them, but I do recall that I studied the Renaissance at A-level, so probably I have. So there's other things going on, but that's what it started me. And when I looked on the internet for research materials, I found literally thousands and thousands and thousands of these images, again, mostly of young people, that anybody can download without even having to pay for them. So it comes back to that idea of, I think the very first piece I did that has been described as disability art is a piece called My Not-So-Secret Life as a Cyborg. And it was around the idea of the, the disabled body being the public body, that anybody has the impression they can come up to a complete stranger and go, what's wrong with you? And at the time I was doing my PhD and, and I would say to people, well, I don't have a grant. And they'd say, well, no, no, what's wrong with you? And I'd say, I don't have a grant. And you'd have this completely kind of conversation at total cross purposes because that was my problem my problem was not that I was disabled my problem was that I didn't have a grant and you know if a complete stranger is asking me to identify my problem that's my problem but I think this whole idea that the most personal medical photograph is still there for public consumption and public performance I think really strikes at the heart of saying well actually not only do we define people as being abnormal, but as soon as we define them as being abnormal, we don't believe they have the same rights as the rest of us, which is why we're able to have a discrimination law that allows you to discriminate. And we don't believe they have the same human rights as the rest of us, which is why the ordinary UN Convention on Human Rights was not enough to cover disabled people, and why you can still have a 21st century society like Britain that can say, well, we're not even going to sign up to the convention as a whole. Abnormal One is perhaps the most overtly autobiographical work in the show. 
I wonder if you could talk us through memory jar collection, which was the site-specific element. As I understand it, in each venue, you've generated a piece that reflected specifically on that gallery or site. Um, not quite to this extent. I, I do try, if I'm touring a show, to put something new in each time. So that, for example, the white coats were made after the exhibition started touring but they went in from the third venue on. And I think the, um, the normal mirrors were something that, <coughs> that I think I put in at Bournemouth. And, and some venues I put in an extra white coat. So yeah, everything had, an, everything had at least one new piece, but it wasn't, it wasn't a major piece in the way that the memory jar collection is. I think when I came into, when I came into the museum, I think one of the things that really struck me about the collection was that you can see it, and it's only one perspective, as the medical model writ large, you know, that the body has been completely fragmented down to individual parts of the body. And at the same point, we have no idea with the vast majority of the collection who the individuals were that those body parts belonged to. So there is that real sense of the body being fragmented and, and all identity being lost. And I wanted to meditate on that. So with the memory jar collection, it's mostly memories taken over the last year where I've taken photographs, mostly on the mobile phone, and I've printed them out on a little pogo printer, which is a Polaroid printer that prints mini photographs. And that's a technique that we also use in the workshops that I run at each venue. So I, we've got a workshop coming up in November. And one of the kind of things that I believe that everybody can do is pair up and then take, set up self-portraits. Your pair takes them on a phone and then we just Bluetooth them to the printer. In this case, they're in, uh, there's 90 jars and all of the jars are labelled. And then within the website that accompanies the exhibition, there's a catalogue so that you can look at a number. For example, I can see there number 16 is my friend, the late David Morris. And there's a story about who, you know, who David was in the sense of what he meant to me. They're quite short stories. But within the catalogue where, again, you know, where I'm able to write, I'm able to sort of go into more depth. I also point out that you could see this as something in complete opposition that I've usually photographed just a part of somebody's body, but you know who they are and you can see that it's part of a whole. But if we really think about it, all of us have seen in junk shops or in relatives' attics as we've cleared houses after somebody's died, hundreds of photographs. Nobody knows who they are, what they're of, where they, where they were taken, when they were taken. And of course now we very seldom even print our photographs out. Most of them are just stuck on a CD somewhere, possibly sort of rotting away. So although we can criticise Hunter's collection if you, and say, oh, we wouldn't have done it like that, I think in reality there's not much difference. So I really wanted to sort of highlight both of those things. But I think in terms of the autobiographical element, people have often said to me, disabled artists often seem to really, you know, to really forefront self-portraiture and autobiographical work. And I think the reason for that, because yes, lots of artists do, is what I was saying to you before, that we don't see pictures of ourselves, either in the, you know, we don't see ourselves represented in history, and we don't see ourselves represented in the media. So 
if you like, physically putting your body and your experience into the work is a way of creating those images. And I think there's also an element that if you're on a lower income than other artists and you're perhaps leading a more restricted life, then it's obviously easier to model for yourself than it is to go and find a model. But I think the it's real cheap. reason... Yeah, and it's cheap. But I think the key reason, like I say, is very much about saying my experience is missing. You know, the world that purports to be normal does not include me and people like me and older people and, you know, people in my family and actually the so-called normal world doesn't actually represent many people at all. So I'm going to do this portrait of myself to put myself back in there. I mean, Memory Jar Collection, for me, resonates on a number of levels with the displays that we have. It's surrounded by John Hunter's collection, which no longer functions as a scientific resource. It's no longer really a medical museum. It's a post-medical museum as my predecessor dubbed it, a post-medical museum, in that it's become medically and pathologically obsolete, but is now an important piece of cultural history. So the specimens in the jars now are interesting scientifically, but they're more interesting for me as objects of cultural history, as objects of, of memory. And as you know, this is one of my favorite topics, but I won't go on about that just now because we have five or 10 minutes left and though Ju and I can and do carry on like this for hours, um, perhaps I should open up for, for more questions from the floor. One at the front, but at the back first, yes? I mean, I've written a lot about this, actually, within... If you look at my website within the Holton Lee blog, I've got some essays on, you know, how would you define disability art and what's the relationship between disability art and all of the people who, under law, would be defined as disabled but don't think of themselves as disabled and how does that apply to the future. But I would say very... Beyond that, I think we as artists who... Dis who identify as part of the disability arts movement would say that it's an international art movement like any other. And I think particularly from the 20th century onwards, there's always been art movements, and art movements tend to be groups of artists who know each other or whose practice has got something in common and who have, a, you know, have some messages that they want to get across, but critically a particular worldview and you know, some particular theories. So... We, you know, and I think that, say, from the 70s onwards, you saw that with, you know, the feminist art movement, which, if you like, almost stopped being relevant to those artists, but over the last five years has suddenly become incredibly relevant again. And what you're seeing is shows, you know, shows being restaged from the 70s and people revisiting theory, but people also making new work. So I think if it's seen as... 
as we see it as an international art movement that is only unusual, if you like, in that it crosses art forms. We have a lot more performing artists in the disability arts movement than you have in most art movements. And indeed, a lot of art movements are just about visual art and sculpture, whereas we very much cover poetry, liter literature, spoken word, and performing arts. But in that sense, then I think it's very helpful. And what I think is interesting is that if you look at the use of colour within artists who identify as disabled and are proud to see themselves as disabled, then I think the use of colour is very different to a classical Western colour palette because what you get in a classical Western colour palette is a very explicit theory that talks about the separation of the mind and the body and the importance of the rational mind and the importance of the very restrained body. I mean, we have, a, you know, because we're cross impairment, there's a very lively kind of section within disability arts of people who describe themselves as users and survivors of the mental health system, who are absolutely in there celebrating the ir irrational mind and people who are very happily kind of celebrating the unrestrained body. And I don't think any of us believe that there's a separation between the mind and the body. And therefore, you can look at work that might be landscape or panoramic drawing or a whole range of other things that have nothing to do with disability but you can notice but I do think very often and almost always in fact the color palette is different and the color palette tends to be much brighter because of course we also reject these ideas that bright color is seen as exotic and naive and feminine and therefore not worthy of kind of proper art which is always done by white non-disabled men because I think that is the other thing people say, well, how do you feel about being described as a disabled artist? But I think, well, I would otherwise be described as a woman artist. And I think you've only got to look at the statistics on how few women are showing work. And, and indeed, you know, really quite surprising things like Tracy Emin's work and Cornelia Parker's sell for about 10% of what the men so-called YBAs sell for. You know, there's still a massive disparity. So I think, you know, it's whether you label yourself or not, you're certainly going to be labelled anyway. There are two questions, uh, one here and one here. Please. Um, my experience um, as, um, as a carer, because my mom was run over by a bus in Houston Station two years ago, and it changed both our lives. And now I have met the best of people the carers' world and, and the people they care for. And each time that you think you're in the worst situation or you are the most desperate one, you hear somebody else's story. And that in itself is, is that learning curve of you know, how amazing the experience of survival is for all of us and, and how much you know both the cared person and the carer interact and I'm very glad and I have to be fair that in, in the Camden Borough there has been a lot of uh, courses and workshops they do the best they can with very limited resource at the moment to keep on training us and you know, motivating us to motivate the person we're caring for when we have no experience at all of being a carer do you want to take some of the other yes. points? Because there's somebody right at the back. Yes. A question here, here, and here, please. Okay. Um, I've been trying to hold on to what I actually wanted to say, but I'm a bit short. 
the social modern disability come from the deficit movement in the USA, right? Non-disabled peers are not adopting it with any confidence in my belief. Having sat on the British Museum as a consultant, uh, there was a big um, argument between disabled people and the Board of Governors in the British Museum, not recognising that the disabled people's movement wanted a museum on disability. And I'm a bit puzzled as to why um, we're not able to achieve uh, and have a reason of this status in de demonstrating um, disability. But getting away from politics with disability would I think would be very harmful because when we have the new DDA coming to play, people are thinking, we can't have quality of life. Actually, they've taken us back to the 70s now, partly because of the uh, lack of. Um, involvement of deductive people themselves, not to challenge that government, working with the lay, the grassroots people. Um, I'm getting a bit lost here now, because what I'm, I'm trying to hold on to is art is a platform that educates people. That's not failed us, because we're not getting the message across. Because when I looked at that screen that this is your art, the, the first word that hit me was handicap. And um, I reacted to that, because it's sending the wrong message because I communicate to people who call themselves handicapped and they say, excuse me, why do you call yourself handicapped? Because that's a very negative stereotype of you know being passive recipient to the non-disabled peer, because they're the one that created that word, not disabled people's movement, right? But the thing to accept, so that is um, a good word to use to get the attention of, of non-disabled people. So um, see that right now, when I'm listening to your conversation, it's quite complex, but causing a conflict for me in trying to understand where the failing is in the country uh, with regard to the treatment and the attitude towards the different people and having the same degree of equality. I'm sorry I'm waffling, but... No. Uh, Should we just take one last yeah, point sure. at the back? Um, yeah. Please, sir. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, as you were um, talking about earlier, you were talking about the um, people... Uh, <coughs> Categorising, you're, you're going to be categorised anyway, and you talk about social model. What was going through my mind is that the world we live in today, with advertisers doing what they do, you're going to be. We are all categorised, whether we like it or not. If you want some saying in what you're going to be categorised as, maybe the social model is part of it, and if you can make the social model actually your own rather than maybe coming from the US or, or whatever, uh, or some, so, some sort of social model, or what, what, whatever you wish to call it, it's probably better that you have some say in that yourself, uh, rather than leaving it to Tesco's um, or whoever. I mean, I should say that we, I mean, it has been developed for the UK, but I think one of the interesting things for me is that in theory, all government policy and all local government policy and all medical policy now recognises the social model. In practice, they behave in a completely different way. And I mean, just a very simple example, within my local authority of Newham, we have what they call a partnership board, and it's supposed to bring together the police and the council and the health authority and other public services. But in terms of which disabled people can go to it, they've got physical impairment here, long-term health condition here, people with mental health problems over here, people with learning difficulties over here. Those of us who might 
have more than one label, they can't cope with at all. And yet that's supposed to be a social model approach because they're involving us, but they're doing it within a medical classification. And I think there's, I mean, there's been very little money put into training to accompany all of these new laws. I mean, I do agree that in some ways things have become worse over the last few years, but certainly when I've sat on, if you like, equality groups, Everybody has come, you know, come along saying the same, you know, where I've thought, well, is this simply a backlash to anti-discrimination legislation coming in for the first time? You know, I've sat on groups with other people who've said, no, the levels of racism I'm experiencing now are much higher than they were 10 years ago. So I do think there's been something going on since we passed into the 21st century. And certainly in the last two or three years, and particularly with the this new government, but I think they were just carrying on that whole idea that, you know, going back to all of the oldest stereotypes, you know, disabled people are defective, they're lazy, they're fraudulent, most of them aren't disabled at all, they're just a burden on other people, they're stealing benefits. Now, if you really look at it, for example, statistically, less than 1% of disability claims are fraudulent, you know, and that's the government's own statistics, but you'd never know that from what the government is saying. And I think that really hasn't helped. Whereas within the art world, disability art became increasingly recognized since the 80s. And I think in particular, when the DDA came in, the Arts Council was forced to recognize that even today, less than half of disabled and deaf people go to even one art event each year, compared to 70% of the rest of the population. Less than 3% of Arts Council funded staff are disabled and so on and so forth. It's a tiny, tiny number. So within the cultural spend, if you like, the taxpayers' cultural spend, a huge amount of that money is not going anywhere near disabled and deaf people or their families and friends. And I think the carer's point is really important because, of course, people that are with us as disabled people are very much disabled by society as well. If you, ha if you need to go somewhere with your disabled partner and they're going to be discriminated against or they can't get in, exactly the same applies to you. And, you know, most of us have families, most of us have friendship groups. You know, once you start looking at that, the sort of huge numbers affected. But what's happened, in the, again, in the last three years is the Arts Council decided they would no, no longer fund anything for the community. They would only fund excellence. And because disabled people can't produce excellent work, something like 95% of the disability arts sector has been disinvested in in the last three years. So I think it's very hard for us as artists to continue when all of that support has been taken away. And in the process, the Arts Council's told everybody that the reason the money's been taken away is we can't be any good unless we're pretending not to be disabled. We're drawing to the end of our time, though the two final questions are here and here, just if you could keep them brief. Very quick, um, it's about disabled art, but perception of it, and I'm going back to a famous composer, everybody knows the name, Beethoven, who went deaf. But do people see his music as the work of a disabled artist? Please remember, he once composed a piece of music when he was completely deaf. I he think had the complete orchestra coming back to mm. yeah. There was an American, there was a film made in America a few years ago that looked at how many of the great artists and musicians of the past had been disabled. 
and how that wasn't seen as an issue. And I think, again, what we're looking at now is a world where, with the growth of science over, and medicine over the 20th century, in Beethoven's time, it was take, you know, a lot of things were taken for granted. You know, I think there was much more acceptance until the recent past, as there is today in the developing world, that impairment is a normal part of human experience. So artists who I think were seen as perfectly normal, I mean, of course, Frida Kahlo, you know, it always used to strike me that when I was briefly teaching at Falmouth College of Art, everybody loved Frida Kahlo. And yet they wouldn't make the slightest adjustment to allow me to be able to continue to work at the college. But they were happy to teach about a woman for whom the students went round to her house when it wasn't possible for her to get her wheelchair into the art school. So, I mean, I do think all of these things are very kind of historically specific. And a final point from the floor. That's absolutely true. Here. So, if something goes wrong down here, where can we take it? Um, disabled people get fined in courts for taking their own um, cases forward. To finish up, these conversations I know can run and run, and I'm sure Jude. I'm not rushing off. Jude's not <laughs> rushing off if you'd like to continue the conversations. I'd like, just as a postscript, to reflect very briefly that. We, as the Hunterian Museum, have learned a great deal from our work with, with Chu. Chu, I wonder, what will you take away from your experience here? What's your take-home message from the Royal College of Surgeons? Oh, that's a really hard one, because I'm, I'm here till the middle of January, so I'm not... I'm really not sure. I mean, I, I think one of the things... I think what's been nice for me is the exhibition started at an institute full of medical research scientists. And it's finished somewhere also very much connected to medicine, but the other side, the practice of medicine. And you were saying earlier that this is a building about the history of medicine. And I think if you look at the history of surgery <coughs> as opposed to surgery today, that was very tied up with the medical model and particularly the development of modern orthopaedic surgery. You know, surgeons spent a very, very long time trying to make the body normal via surgery. And in the process, they discovered an awful lot of very helpful things. But we still do hark back to, for example, the 60s, where it was very common just to, if a child didn't look normal, you amputated the bits that didn't look normal and the belief that you were going to come up with some wonderful medical solution or engineering solution. And then it turned out that actually you couldn't. You know, so I think the hit, you know, it's nice to be surrounded by that history. But where I look, I suppose, at an intersection of surgery and the scientific model is that you can have surgeons do the most wonderful work today in either improving somebody's physical function or restoring function after accident or illness. But because they don't look normal, instead of looking at this surgical work and thinking how wonderful, we just see it as a failure because somebody hasn't 
somebody doesn't look the way that we expect that science is able to deliver for us. So I don't actually think it, you know, I say in the website that the scientific model of disability is very unhelpful to scientists. And I think it's, you know, equally unhelpful to doctors and particularly to surgeons. So it's been interesting for me to meditate on surgery and also, again, to say, well, actually, kind of doctors and surgeons come from completely different histories and traditions. And again, when we're looking at a medical model and the way we view medicine, you know, should we not be making more of an effort to once more separate what we mean by medicine from what we mean by surgery? So, yeah, it's an ongoing process. And this ongoing process will continue over the course of the, of the um, show here. The next occasion of particular interest, perhaps, is the evening of the 18th of October, when we'll broaden out our discussion to include medical historians and surgeons and museum studies experts. And that'll be at 7 o'clock on the 18th of October. Again, free, but please do book in advance. And that's downstairs, isn't it? And that'll be downstairs. So I look forward to seeing as many of you there who uh, are inclined and uh, able to make it. Um, but in the meantime, thank you to everyone to, for joining. Is it an urgent point? Uh, I just wondered if my mom would like to ask something to the artist. I wonder whether we could yeah, continue we the discussions informally um, because we've, we've run over already. But thank you, Ju. Thank you, Julie and Claire Felton. And thank you all for coming. Thank you.